Hey, it's Julia, your political climate podcast host, and I wanted to let you know that this week's episode is going to be a little different for two reasons. One, it features our first guest, Terry Tamanen, a clean energy policy pioneer with experience working across political parties. Two, we recorded the show live in front of the audience at Green Tech Media's 11th annual Solar Summit in San Diego. And for that reason, the show won't sound quite the same. But I promise you, it's an engaging and informative conversation, and I really hope that you enjoy it. Oh, and one last thing. We just launched a new segment called Constituent Services. Just like the lawmakers up on Capitol Hill have to reply to their voters, we're going to take some time each show to respond to your questions and comments. So please reach out. We're on Twitter at poly underscore climate. That's P-O-L-I underscore climate. And we look forward to speaking with you there. And now... Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Julia Piper with Political Climate. Amazing. Thank you, Stephen. Hello, Solar Summit. Hello to all of our listeners. Again, I'm Julia Piper, Senior Editor with Green Tech Media. Just once more, could I have you make a little more noise so we can really let the people at, no at home know that we are indeed in front of a room full of people. One quick round. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, welcome again to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. We're coming to you today from rainy San Diego, where it is so cold. I swear Senator Inhofe is going to use this day in his next global warming hoax speech. Like, I'm just waiting for it on C-SPAN. But seriously, all kidding aside, the reason we launched this show was to try and break out of the echo chambers that we really felt we were seeing in energy and climate issues, as in a lot of issues, uh, in this really heightened political moment. So we wanted to encourage ourselves, challenge ourselves, to hear what people on the other side of the aisle were saying. We don't always agree. Um, hopefully we push back against each other. But we wanted to at least show that we could have a civilized conversation about these things, and ultimately, you know, maybe come to some consensus, because the partisanship just seems to be blocking effective policy action in a lot of cases. So. To that end, we have our Democrat and Republican co-hosts on the other couch over there, sitting next to each other. We got them to get along enough to do that. Um, in the gray, nearer to me, is Shane Skelton, former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan, the Kylo Ren of our show, if you will. How, how are you doing, the, the Shane? The force is strong over here, I think is what you The force saying. is strong. We will turn him. Exactly, yeah. Brandon Hurlbut, uh, who served as uh, Chief of Staff under Secretary of Energy Stephen Chu, former Obama alumni, and he's convinced he can bring Shane to the light by midterms. <laughs> so we'll see how you do with that. We're going to get it trending on Twitter at some point. Turn Shane blue. Turn Shane blue. Get, get that hashtag going. Not sure I love that exact phrase. <laughs> Um, to help us tackle the latest prickly politics and energy, we're joined today by an outstanding guest, Terry Tamanen, uh, who has firsthand experience with reaching across the aisle to tackle pressing energy and environmental issues. Terry, you're currently the CEO of the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, uh, former Secretary of California's Environmental Protection I Agency, appointed by Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, co-founder of the R20 Regions of Climate Action, and a very accomplished author. Thank you so much for being here, Terry. Truly my pleasure now that I can test the mic, and yeah. I know that it works, even yes. here in rainy San Diego. Here in rainy, yes, exactly. Um, so I have to ask, as the solar conference, who do you think has personally deployed more solar panels, Leo or Schwarzenegger? 
Well, Leo has certainly done it on uh, his home, and uh, as has Arnold, so that would probably be just a trade-off. But I do have to say, because of Arnold's policies as governor, our Million Solar Roofs Initiative, other things that we can talk about, we probably have to give the nod to, uh, to the, the governor. Right. Okay, that's fair, that's fair. All right, we, put that, we got that mystery solved, though. Kick things off, I want to do a quick game of who said it. So I'm going to give each of you a quick quote, and you have to guess which policymaker or politician recently said this. Terry, I'm going to put it to you first. Who tweeted, I agree it's important we work together diligently and diplomatically to maintain one national program for cleaner cars. So, like, call me maybe? Uh, Prime Minister Modi of India, perhaps? <laughs> No. Close. It was actually Mary Nichols, chairwoman of the California Air Resources Board, tweeting to EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt about the fuel economy standards. Uh, as we know, California just launched a lawsuit, so she was tweeting at him to call her. Maybe they can sort it out. So clearly this isn't a quiz show where we got the answers beforehand. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is, this is real live hard question I'm asking. I'm nervous. I knew that one, and now I'm going to get totally stuck, I'm sure. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Coming to you last, Shane. Brandon, you're next. America made, this is the quote, America made a commitment, and as an American, if the government's not going to do it, we all have a responsibility. I'm able to do it. So, yes, I'm going to send them a check for the monies that America has promised. Mayor Bloomberg? Yes. Ding, 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 ding. That is yeah, a little round of applause. Someone's been reading their news. Uh, that's former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg talking about giving $4.5 million of his own money to hold up U.S. commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement. Shane, over to you. This is the quote. I don't give a damn if you believe in climate change. I could care less if you're concerned about temperatures rising or melting glaciers. It doesn't matter to me which of us is right about the science. I just hope that you'll join me in opening door number two to a smarter, cleaner, healthier, more profitable energy future. Oh, boy. Um, that's something I would say, so I like this person, whoever it is. It wasn't um, Paul Ryan's answer to that kid, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> no, it was not. No, it was not. How about... Um, I'm going to be wrong here, but was it uh, President Macron? No, it was California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ah, should I? <laughs> I would have gotten that one right. <laughs> yeah, I know. I did not put that one to Terry. I, did, I, did, I do not follow context cues, clearly. <laughs> yeah. no, she just didn't use the right accent. That's yeah. right, that's right. Nor did she say, I'll be back. <laughs> I think I would have gotten it then, 50-50 at least. <laughs> I definitely would not have been able to pull that off. Uh, that was also in a 2015 Facebook post, probably why you didn't see it, Shane. <laughs> Are you oh, on I, social media? I started yesterday at 2016, so I, had I gone back a little further, I would have nailed it. Right. Um, well, that just gives us a little flavor to kick things off. Um, speaking of Governor Schwarzenegger, aren't, uh, Terry, question to you. you. You oversaw California's landmark Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006, the Hydrogen Highway Network, the Million Solar Roofs Initiative, which you mentioned earlier, which launched the California Solar Initiative, which was hugely successful and really allowed this whole industry and everyone here in this room, I think, to prosper and see the industry grow. So I think a big thank you is owed to you for that work. Um, actually, let's give Terry a little round of applause because that was a phenomenal program. <laughs> really helped bring down the economies, or helped achieve economies of scale in solar. So tell us about those days. Was that politically controversial to pass a series of really aggressive and ambitious uh, policies and, and regulations at that time? Well, first of all, thank you very much, and thanks to all of you for being here. Um, I, I want to put all this in a very quick context with a little short story about something that happened not far from where we're sitting here in San Diego 20 years ago, so even before the Schwarzenegger administration. Um, I was part of a team that helped rescue a baby gray Pacific whale. 
from the beaches right nearby here, and uh, it had been separated from its mother. We got it down to SeaWorld, who nursed it back to health. They named it JJ. If you go to their gift, their gift shop, you can still buy JJ books and stuffed animals and all that kind of thing. They re-released it into the wild. There was some evidence that she survived very well. And so we were all patting ourselves on the back, and of course humanity in general pats itself on the back for getting gray whales off the endangered species list. And so we all think, great, isn't that a terrific success story? But that gray whale should live to be about 75 years old, will probably die of hunger by the age of 50 because of climate change because we're acidifying the oceans at a rate that is wiping out their food supply in the Arctic. And if that happens, obviously all of the work we've done to save that species is for naught. So I mention this little story, obviously because of its connection right here to the coastline of San Diego, but because it's that sense of urgency that many of us have that we're running out of time to do this right. And the only way that one of the key things that we're going to have to get right is get more solar on the grid, get more solar on rooftops, get off of fossil fuels. And if we want to save JJ, it's the only way we're also going to save ourselves. So with that as a backdrop, we had that sense of urgency in the Schwarzenegger administration as well, even back then, because of climate change, because of air pollution and so forth. And so when we proposed the Million Solar Roofs Initiative, everybody said, sure, you know, California, you bet, why not? Good for business, uh, so the Republicans liked it, good for the environment, so the Democrats liked it. And then everybody started larding up the bill with their special interests. And so the, um, the Democrats wanted to get what was called prevailing wage to make sure that, that certain wage restrictions would apply, not just to putting the solar on the roofs, which, you know, we could all agree on, but to anything else, like whoever was paving the road going into the, into the you know, housing tract or whatever that was going to have the new solar. And the Republicans wanted to put various things on. Anyway, long story short, something that everybody agreed on three years in a row got hijacked by politics. And so it was Governor Schwarzenegger who then went to Mike Peavy at the time, the head of the, uh, of the uh, uh, PUC, Public Utility Commission, and they managed to do it through a regulatory matter, which then got codified into legislation. But it started out where everybody wanted to do this and then couldn't keep their hands off the simple bill. Terry, can I actually ask you a follow-up question? Because we've talked a lot on our podcast about how the politics, specifically of climate change, impact a lot of the policies that would help address climate change. I've been of the mind that I don't really care if anyone agrees about the science, if they agree about the fact that there's a problem, if they acknowledge there's a problem. Uh, my point of view has been that if you're willing to invest in solutions, you can believe whatever you want as long as you'll vote for the bill or get the job done. A lot of people think that if you can't name the problem, you can't address it, and so you're really not addressing the problem. But as you said, politics can make these things take long. And so if there's a sense of urgency, from your perspective, does it matter if people agree with you that there's a problem that needs to be addressed, or are you happy to take their support, even if it's just for business reasons, financial reasons, or otherwise? Oh, absolutely. Listen, uh, after Trump got elected, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and I went to visit him before the inauguration to try to talk sense into him about these very issues. And that's exactly the point we made to him. Look, we know you campaigned on a fossil fuel agenda, an anti-climate agenda. 
don't talk about climate change, but let us show you how many jobs we can create in America with solar in particular, with energy efficiency. We talked to him about that, and he proudly pointed out the LED lights in his Trump Tower office and the programmable thermostat on his, on his office wall. He said he totally understood that, that there was a payback and that, you know, the Department of Energy, Brandon, you know, that, that he could do a, a you know, loan guarantee program or something through the DOE. Uh, if he, you know, once he was in office. So he totally got all of that. And we said, great, you do that. We'll be very happy for environmental reasons. You'll be very happy for economic reasons. And of course, unfortunately, well, we all know what's happened since then. But Lies. you're absolutely right. It, you know, and that said, maybe if he had a better sense or other politicians who ignore the sense of urgency, if they had a better sense of that issue and their, what their kids and grandkids are going to face, maybe that would get them to spur into action. But why isn't that happening? You know, like, it seems like we can agree to a point and then things kind of start to break down or when it comes to implementation, things, the policies start to break down. And we've re received feedback on this show already just basically saying, no offense, Shane, <laughs> Republicans just aren't environmentalists. Forget them. Vote them out. There's no point in even having this conversation. Um, and so I guess what do you think of that? Can enough get done fast enough by trying to build consensus and alliances? I'll tell you, I'll put this to you first. Um, do you think that's a valuable exercise, or is it just about going to the ballot box and trying to get those who disagree with you out of office? Well, look, you have to get more people on board. I think ultimately, even if you could get every Republican out of office, still, their interests are still going to be represented. You know, look at the Koch brothers. I mean, if anybody's read Dark Money, Jane Mayer's book, it's an amazing book, uh, there's a lot of powerful forces against the kinds of things that we're trying to do and trying to prop up the dying coal industry, amongst other things. So whether or not you have Republicans in office, that's going to happen. And by the way, a lot of Democrats have taken that sort of dirty money uh, when push came to shove and changed votes uh, and changed their long-held opinions on things. So I don't think it's a question of getting one party out of, out of power or another one in power more. It's a matter of making sure everybody understands what's at stake and what the opportunities are. To Shane's point, this is an enormous opportunity. So how do we get out of that tribal echo chamber where it's, it seems like it's very hard to change anyone's mind on anything right now? So what can we do there, Terry, do you think? Well, you know, again, look, I think first of all, you've got to talk to the people who elected them. I mean, as, as we all know, elected leaders are actually followers. That, you know, if you can push the constituents, you can educate the constituents, you can get them literally marching in the streets or figuratively marching in the streets. Um, if you can, let's be honest, spread a little money around. If you can, you know, you've got a solar industry here. What is this industry worth? I'm quite sure the solar industry has got lobbyists in Washington and in our state capitals as well that can help out with education and, you know, a little bit of fundraising for those candidates that understand these issues. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's really, uh, one of the uh, state senators I was talking to recently said, you know, we get about 10 or 12 emails or letters on any given subject. And when we suddenly see 20 or 30 or 100 coming in, we suddenly know that's an issue we should pay attention to. Think about that, at least in, in California, state senator only 10, 15 emails or letters on a, on a given topic. So it doesn't take that many constituents to show that they care to start moving that needle. That's a great point. I think it's interesting, too, that there, there are Republicans, I know from my reporting, that agree on 
the solution, a lot of the solutions, especially renewable energy. Solar in particular has huge bipartisan support. And I'm always amazed, even when I hear from readers and in our comment section, that you know they're challenging us, don't assume this is just a democratic industry, because it, it isn't, it's national. And a lot of red states are supporting this with various policies. What's interesting to me is that you, conversations start to break down, I think, a lot around oil, cars, and we'll get into that in a little more detail. Terry, when do you think the conversations break down? Is it when established industries start to feel the pain, and it's not just about the new exciting technology that everyone can kind of agree on is a, is a good thing? Is it when the term climate change enters, because that's politically charged? Like, when do you think things start to break down? Because they do at some point. You know, change is difficult, whether it's climate change or any other kind of change. Change is difficult. Uh, my wife's grandmother, who passed away recently at the age of 106, when she was born, the predominant form of transportation was still the horse and buggy. The predominant form of lighting was gas lamps. And the predominant form of refrigeration was an icebox. And literally within 10 years, by the time she was 10 years old, that had all changed. The predominant form of transportation was motorized. We had refrigeration, electrical refrigeration, um, and, and we had telephones. I mean, all of those things changed in a very, very short period of time because they were better. And so we know that these changes are going to happen, and yet there will be these breakdowns of the conversation, these breakdowns of politics in part because of vested interests that want to hang on to their business model. And, you know, my warning to, to business models like that and to those who support them is, do you want to be Kodak or do you want to be Apple? And, you know, Kodak should have dominated digital photography and should be the biggest company, one of the biggest companies they in the world. They invented it. They invented the digital technology. Yeah, right, exactly. They didn't want to cannibalize themselves. Right, Exactly. And, you know, I mean, even companies like Xerox and IBM that, uh, that made the kinds of products which ultimately Microsoft took over and made huge fortunes on and so on. So, you know, a lot of this is, is just trying to help these companies get civilized. I mean, when I wrote my book, Lives Per Gallon, The True Cost of Our Oil Addiction, it is a pretty big indictment on the oil industry and the auto industry and the way they acted like the tobacco industry to lie to regulators and lie to the public about the harms of their, of their products and so on and so forth. But I always quickly remind everybody, and I say this in the book, I'm not trying to put them out of business. I'm trying to civilize them so they will have a business in the future. Imagine if the oil companies took their enormous wealth and were building charging stations at all of their gasoline stations and, and hydrogen refueling stations all across the country. It would be a fraction of one quarter prof, of their quarter's profit. And they could do that across the country and be ready to fuel the future. Um, and instead they say, well, you know, we'll wait and see. If there's enough of those kind of cars, then maybe we'll do it. Well, somebody else will step in first. Yeah, Terry, we had this conversation at dinner last night and Interestingly, I made the same point you made, which was if you have the money, what do you care what you're selling? If you can be the, the owner of the technology, who cares if it's a, an oil rig or an EV charging station or the infrastructure that supports it? And that's been something that's really interesting to me is that the energy companies who are well capitalized haven't chosen to make that investment solely you know, in, in, in good business planning. Um, but, but at the risk of being the, uh, the Kylo Ren that I've been set up to be, I guess... My question, and you did address this, but I want to sort of ask it point blank, is do you think a lot of the advocacy is the issue with getting stuff done? Because I think a lot of the companies in this room are doing the right things. Um, I read an article this morning that the solar industry has actually 
donated more to Republican campaigns over the last two cycles than Democratic campaigns. They've worked hard uh, to educate Republicans. I, I've turned, so I know it's possible. I was very, very uh, pro-fossil fuel, very anti-everything else. I'm not anti-fossil fuel, but I'm pro-everything else, and I just want what works best. So I know that, that it can be done, but it's so highly politicized. And when we get feedback that says, you know, throw Republicans out, they can't be helpful— I want to remind people that, you know, the world didn't start yesterday. The, the 1970 Clean Air Act, Republican president. 1990 Amendments, Republican president. Uh, EPAC 05, Republican president. ERISA 2007, Republican president. I'm not in any way arguing that only Republicans care. I know both parties do. Only that it's easier to achieve legislative change when both parties are on board. Whereby, you know, in 2009 you had, uh, Brandon and I will debate the specific number, but 60 Democratic senators, um, a Democratic House, a Democratic president, and made absolutely no progress on the issue, so took the regulatory route instead. When you see that, does it frustrate you that advocates are, are snatching um, defeat from the jaws of victory, or do you think that it takes sort of all the forces pulling together to get this done? <laughs> Well, definitely the latter, but I would say that actually that 2009 example you gave uh, is, is a good one because it shows how complicated this is. It's not a question of who's advocating or who's yelling louder or whatever. Um, and as you say, we can debate whether or not there was actually ever 60 votes because it was Republicans who kept Al Franken out of the Senate. Thank um, you, Terry. And, that was my point and then last by night. the time Al got in, there was a straight up yelling match. Brandon could have used your help night. last night. No, I almost one got kicked out of the restaurant. And, and but the, but just as long as you brought it up, just to be clear, and I'm not taking sides here, but. Uh, by the time Al Franken was seated, uh, Ted Kennedy was so ill that he couldn't show up for work uh, other than for the health care vote. So, so uh, the truth is it was 59. But still, that's a huge majority. But here's the point. When I was advising Obama during his 2008 run for president, um, I told him, you're not going to get a national climate bill because there's too many competing interests, there's too many nuances to this, and you don't need it. If we had gotten a bill then, what happens? Uh, those kinds of bills get passed. They're very complicated. It takes a long time to go through the regulatory process. There would have been court challenges. And then finally, when all of those were exhausted, what does the federal government do with the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act? They say, here are the standards. States, go meet them and tell us how you're going to do it. So for, with clean air, for example, which is now how we're regulating uh, greenhouse gases, you have a state implementation plan and without getting into all the you know, acronyms and details. Uh, Brandon can talk about this too. But, uh, but you have mandates for the states to do this, which is why in the Schwarzenegger administration, we wrote our own climate plan. We encouraged other states to do that. It's why we helped form the R20 to help other states and even provinces and other jurisdictions around the world to write their own climate plans that involved using clean energy and energy efficiency and waste reduction and so on and so forth because we knew that ultimately the federal government would have to turn to the states anyway. And then if they didn't, well, now you got a bottom-up approach. But the point is the states were already doing it, whereas it would have taken a decade to get a new complicated climate law in place and the Clean Air Act did it. And shortly before the, uh, uh, that election, the Supreme Court ruled that greenhouse gases are pollutants as defined by the Clean Air Act. So, you know, our three branches of government, the legislature had spoken with the Clean Air Act, the judiciary had spoken by ruling on greenhouse gases, and it was time for the president to act, which Obama did. Are you concerned, though, that it it's so easily reversible. If it's not a new statute that addresses greenhouse gases specifically, if it's Clean Air Act, you can do what's been done and just roll it back. I mean, I think the reason I've been focused on legislation is that 
regulations are dependent upon elections. And if you're a state like California who wants to lead, you're going to lead, and you're going to do that anyway. But if you're a state that doesn't want to lead, you're better off sort of sitting back and waiting out election cycles. And to me, that creates sort of a perpetual cycle of delay that makes it difficult for states who don't want to lead in this space to determine that it's time to do that. Well, look, uh, again, without getting too partisan, but let's state the obvious. Pruitt and Zinke are proving that it doesn't matter what laws are in place if you don't enforce them. Uh, You're still going to have dirty air. You're still going to wipe out endangered species and so forth. So, again, having that bottom-up approach, I think, also builds the constituency to finally get to the point where then it doesn't matter who's in power, but they're going to have to follow those laws. And it's much like you know, let's say with same-sex marriage, where it took many, many states to finally make that move before finally the Supreme Court could say, hey, the tide has turned, it's done. Uh, that didn't end up in national legislation, but at least it did end up in a change in our, in our country. And I think the same thing is true with a lot of these issues, that more and more states and provinces, well, provinces in Canada, but states here do this, the more likely it is our federal government will finally pay attention and ratify what is already a train that's left the station. I just want to make one final point on all that. Uh, Shane's, you know, examples of the Republican Party being environmentally friendly, uh, I think it's just evidence of how far the Republican Party has moved to the right, because all those examples are are pre-2009. We tried to work with Republicans when I was in the Obama administration. I mean, cap and trade was a Republican idea. That was the compromise. I think a lot of Democrats would have favored a carbon tax, just like many Democrats would have favored Medicare for all on health care, but we compromised with Bob Dole's health care plan or Mitt Romney's health care plan. So cap and trade was our way to compromise and build consensus and work with Republicans, but we found it was very obstructionist. Mitch McConnell said from the start, you know, I, my job is to make Barack Obama a one-term president. He said that the day after Barack Obama was elected. So it was very difficult to work across the aisle on this. Well, I think abundance was what changed. I mean, certainly I think the party did move. I think both parties have moved, but I think we didn't have abundance before. There was a problem, like a clearly identifiable problem that needed to be solved, which is we're short on resources, we're going to be short on resources, and we need to work together to find solutions. Once we determined that peak oil or peak gas doesn't exist, you're really looking at peak demand curve at this point, you have unlimited wind, solar, oil, gas, and everything else. Now you have to start making choices rather than choices based on necessity. And I think climate change, as real as it is, Unless you work in this space, you can't touch it. You can't see it. It's not like um, energy where you you turn on your light switch. You fully understand that you need that to be reliable. Great. I'm going to jump in here with a... It kind of relates to a question that we got from a listener, and I'm going to introduce this new segment of our show we're going to call Constituent Services, where like on Capitol Hill, we take feedback from our listeners in this case, rather than voters. So we encourage everyone to reach out to us on Twitter. We're at Polly, P-O-L-I underscore climate, and tell us what you'd like us to cover uh, going forward. This question is admittedly an amalgamation, but it's about how to get action at the state level, particularly I'm thinking of the solar industry that's here, probably a lot of you are working in red states, working on local and state level policy making. Terry, you talked about Johnny Appleseeding and taking California's lessons learned and going to other states and helping them craft their own plans. What is the lessons you would give people in this room and our listeners about how to make progress in states that aren't as progressive or already as ambitious as California is? 
Well, the first thing, I just want to clarify the record. When I left state government and I was going around, as you say, trying to Johnny Appleseed some of California's programs to other states and help other states do that sort of thing, a friend of mine said, do you really want to be known as Johnny Appleseed? And he gave me a book to read. It turns out Johnny Appleseed was a drunk and a pedophile. And, <laughs> and, I did not know that. Yeah. So, uh, so I quickly gave up that, uh, that metaphor. But, okay, we'll scrub that one from the record. But, Edit that uh, on the podcast, Julia. Oh, this is a family-friendly show, I promise. <laughs> Um, although, I don't know, in this political day and age, maybe those two things don't matter. But moving on, um, <laughs> fake news, fake news, <laughs> fake news, fake news. Um, but, uh, but, you know, seriously, look, I mean, I think different things work in different states. I mean, we managed to help, and lots of other uh, advocates did this uh, as well, to get 33 states to have renewable portfolio standards, meaning that a certain percentage of their energy would come from renewables over a period of time. And then that sent the mandate to utilities that you're going to have to procure. That sent the signal to the industry and so on. Others did various kinds of incentives for for solar in particular. Uh, So different things worked in different states. And I think part of the problem, and just to follow on to what Shane was talking about before, that leads right into this, is the, the subsidies are a problem in the sense that, of course, not every state can do them. There's a, there's a lot of political pushback on that sort of thing. There's questions about the economic fairness of it and so forth. But as long as we're subsidizing the fossil fuel industry, what else can you do? I mean, I'd actually be in favor of ending, fossil, uh, uh, ending subsidies for all forms of energy. And at that point, I think renewables would play a much greater role. Round of applause on that. Nice. But you, but you can't go around saying, oh, yeah, you know, renewables don't, uh, don't compete fairly because they're subsidized. When, you, when I wrote Lives Per Gallon, I calculated at that time that we're actually paying about $6 to $7 a gallon more than whatever is the pump price in subsidies for oil. And that's actually stuff on a balance sheet that doesn't include, say, a lost productivity from a worker who, who has asthma or, or lung cancer or whatever. That's actual cost of health care, of crops destroyed, of protecting oil around the globe with our defense industry, et cetera, et cetera, not to mention the trillion-dollar Iraq war, which we know in retrospect was all about oil. So, uh, so at the end of the day, if you level the playing field, then I think policymakers can start to see bigger opportunities to incentivize what's going to be a good industry. And that, to me, is the, at the end of the day, solar is the perfect example of something you cannot export those jobs to another country. So you want to see more electrical jobs, you want to see more you know, workman jobs, et cetera, et cetera, embrace solar. And as many of you know in this room, if you're from California, our construction industry was not hurt as much as it was in the rest of the country, thanks to the Million Solar Roofs Initiative during the last recession. And, uh, and a lot of roofers and electricians and others could switch over to, to doing that, and it, it helps save the industry. So to me, you've got to advocate in each state for what matters. Terry, when we, um, as a public policy matter, one, you know, that came up a lot is you can't whine about subsidies for certain technologies and support subsidies for others. You've got to get rid of them or level the playing field. I think in principle, not everyone, but almost everyone agreed, what we bumped into quite a bit was what is a subsidy? So with like a production tax credit or an investment tax credit, it's very clear. You do X, I give you Y. And it's easy to point to that and say the government's giving you money. Um, with oil and gas, a lot of it's you know depreciation of real property, uh, deductions of business expenses. And so at what point, from your perspective, do you go, these are just business operation expenses that any industry on planet Earth should be able to deduct, 
And these are very narrowly tailored to subsidize oil and gas and need to be removed to level the playing field. Well, I think you just said it. I mean, it's, it, if it smells uh, like this and it looks like this and so on, it's this. I mean, so it, it's probably fairly easy to identify those things that are direct subsidies and those things that might seem a little more indirect and, and might be for certain businesses. But, you know, that said, what is a ordinary business deduction for an ordinary business? Is it really needed by the wealthiest industry ever to create, be created on the planet? So maybe not. Maybe, you know, when we talk about changing tax rates and so forth, maybe it's time to, you know, remove some of those even common tax breaks for companies that no longer need it. Why were those tax breaks put there in the first place? To spur investment, to spur the development of that industry, to help it along, and all for good reasons. But maybe certain industries no longer, certain companies, when they reach a certain, you know, profitability or what have you, and I'm no tax expert, so don't take this literally, but maybe there's, you know, that sort of reform that instead of it being this broad brush of, of you know, credits and, and uh, various other kinds of deductions, that it actually is specific to the profitability of, of a company. I don't want to pick on GE, but it's the one example that everybody remembers because Jeff Immelt, when he was on President Obama's Economic Council, famously had to answer the question, how is it that a company so wealthy, so profitable, paid zero taxes? So, come on, uh, you know, even though those are completely legitimate business taxes and he's not in the oil and gas business, um, although I guess they make things that burn oil and gas and coal. But, uh, but, you know, why is it that companies like that absolutely pay no taxes because of, as you say, what are ordinary uh, uh, deductions and standard deductions? All the small businesses are paying those taxes. I, I agree with Republicans on that point. It's in defense of subsidies, just for the sake of conversation, like we keep saying remove all subsidies, but don't we want to invest and help encourage the next generation of technology? It happens to be cleaner technology, but don't we always want to iterate? And doesn't that make sense to compete with everyone else who's just embarking on these new technologies? Like That seems to be a strategic national move. Uh, I get why we don't want incentives forever, but Brandon, we talked about this in our last episode, winners and losers. We have the Trump administration seeking to shore up existing coal and nuclear power plants. That doesn't seem the same as to me as taking uh, funds during the Recovery Act and investing that in a slew of new age technologies. Those are not the same types of support mechanisms. Would you agree? What, what do you think, Brandon? Yeah, and as we said, I mean, the, the government has uh, a long history of supporting industries in their infancy to help get them going. You know, we mentioned this last time, we, we, we've done this with semiconductors and airplanes, and we see huge opportunity in this market to create lots of jobs, clean up our air, and you know, I think the government should continue to play a role in, in getting the industry going, and I think we're getting to the point, unlike fossil fuels, where the industry will be able to stand on its own without subsidy. Great. Um, I wanted to turn to uh, your work at the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, Terry. Um, last September, you announced $20 million in grants, um, bringing the organization's total direct financial impact to more than $80 million since 2008. Um, the latest round supported a range of environmental initiatives, including wildlife preservation, clean oceans, supporting indigenous rights to environmental protection, among other things. Uh, Terry, talk about some of the projects you supported um, that advance clean energy in particular. Well, I'd say actually some of our solar work was the stuff that we're most proud of. Uh, let me just give you two quick examples. One, in Fiji uh, recently, we worked with the national government there to set up a trust fund, and um, a loan is given to a rural village to be able to install solar battery 
uh, electrical systems uh, and replace diesel, which most of them are using, uh, it gives them more power, more consistent power throughout the day when they need it instead of a couple of hours and very expensive and intermittently available diesel fuel and so on, polluting. Um, and so it replaces that. They pay no more than what they were paying for uh, for diesel fuel. And over time, that loan gets paid back. And then, of course, after that, their energy is free. And uh, when it gets paid back, then that loan will go to the next village and the next one. And we're actually going to try to accelerate that by selling some of those projects into a green bond so that we can recycle the capital faster. We're also going to take this model to India and work with a number of organizations there to do the same thing. Uh, here in the United States, we're talking to a number of companies, I, I won't mention names because we're not ready to announce anything, but some household names uh, of companies that are very interested in getting to 100% uh, clean energy for their own uh, business activities or retail stores or what have you, and it's not always practical for them to put solar panels on a rooftop of a building that they might not own or might not have enough roof space. Uh, and so they want to have solar or other renewable energy closer to where their facilities are. Some are buying wrecks or, you know, offsets or what have you, but uh, would prefer to do something local that would help clean air and, and jobs locally. So we're working with an organization called Revolve here in California, some of you may know. They do kind of that same thing as being done in Fiji, except on a for-profit model where they will install solar for a church, a nonprofit organization, a boys and girls club, maybe even a city hall. And, uh, and then when that gets paid back, they revolve the, uh, the loan again, uh, or they repay it back to the investors. And uh, it helps those organizations establish credit. It helps them get uh, you know, solar on their rooftops. And then uh, by investing in that, some of these other companies that are trying to, to do their part, uh, if they invest in that or if they make grants to that sort of an organization, then they can take the credit for, in essence, having replaced their fossil fuel energy with, with clean energy. So uh, we're very looking for those kinds of innovative financial solutions because, to me, the, the, the solution to all of this is policy, technology, and finance. And we've talked a lot about the policies and whether it's RPSs or million solar roof initiatives or, or incentives. Um, the technology certainly exists. All of you are proving that. The costs are coming down. The innovation is getting greater and greater, even storage capacity and so forth. So the last thing that's needed is finance and to get more investors putting money into this kind of work all over the world. I think that's interesting. I think of Leonardo DiCaprio, the actor, being very vocal on ocean issues. That's how I first kind of got introduced to his act activism. And now it's interesting to see more tailored investments and a new kind of activism by really, like you say, doing the financing piece of it, which is really interesting. Well, and those are, are connected. That's why I told that little story about J.J. the Whale. I mean, we, we can't, and this is something, kind of an epiphany that came to him. Many of you may have seen his film, before the flood. Maybe not as many of you as saw Titanic, but in any event, uh, Before the Flood was his documentary about climate change, and he went around the world to observe what is happening on climate change, not just to predict it or to be a scientist, but to see what's already happening. And he came to the understanding that all of the 20 years of work now that he's been doing with his foundation to protect endangered species and their habitats and protect indigenous rights and so forth uh, can be undone by climate change in the next few decades, as we mentioned in that story about the gray whale. <clears throat> so, uh, so really, when you're advocating for clean energy and you're advocating for solving climate change, you're advocating for all the rest. So you mentioned uh, getting to 100% renewables. Uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation supports the Solutions Project, which 
in transparency. Brandon, you're involved with that organization. So we picked on Republicans earlier. I'm going to pick on Democrats now a little bit. Um, why is the goal 100% renewables? We saw a big debate uh, flare up last year between academics and clean energy advocates over whether 100% is literally technically feasible for the United States. There were a lot of assumptions in one paper. A group of academics responded challenging that, and it really got kind of ugly. Like, if you follow Twitter, it was not, you know, it was a real battle royale. I guess, why is 100% such an important rallying cry, and is it a little bit disingenuous and misleading if we can't prove that we can even technically get there yet? Brandon. It's a great question, Julia. I am on the board of Solutions Project, and five years ago, we were talking about whether our goal should be 100%. And we came out with that goal, and a lot of people were, they called me, they were critical uh, of it. They said, we're misleading people, it's not technically feasible, we're creating unrealistic expectations, and that's going to be destructive to the cause. But our goal was to inspire people. I mean, we didn't, John F. Kennedy didn't say we're going 80% to the moon. He said we're going all the way. And so what has happened since we set that goal? You know, 166 cities or something like that have gone 100%. Anywhere from, you know, Minneapolis just came out the other day. They're going 100%. Atlanta, Georgia, towns in Texas. This is happening all over the country. You know, Terry mentioned corporations. The largest corporations in the world have already gone 100%. Google and Apple and more are coming. You know, policymakers are going 100%. You know, both candidates for president in 2016 from the Democratic Party, um, or all the candidates for, for uh, in the primary were for 100%. And so we're seeing this happen very quickly. And, you know, I think in academic, you know, uh, faculty lounges, you know, they can have the debate about, you know, how to get from 80 to 100%. There was a defamation suit that was launched. Yeah. A little more but, than a you know, lounge I think, conversation. That will be hard. You know, they're right that the last 20% will be hard. But we're talking about doing this over the next 30 years. And I believe that in American innovation and the people in this room can figure this out. But Brandon, you, you said, um, you know, Google's 100%. Some cities are 100%. And I guess my question would be, uh, because if we can do it, that's fantastic. But I'm in the camp that says, let's set achievable goals and get there rather than, you know, something that can't be achieved and then have on the political spectrum Republicans going, okay, this isn't a serious effort, so we don't really need to engage in this. Um, can a company like Google be 100% if other companies are not? Because isn't a lot of this buying credits? Isn't, it's not that their facilities, their server farms are actually 100% powered. It's that they're paying for their sins by buying credits and offsets and that sort of stuff. So if no one is using anything but renewables, is there energy to actually power these cities, these companies, uh, without the ability to, to use non-renewables, but then pay for the right to say that you did? I think we have to add, though, that Google, I believe, buys enough renewable power to offset its usage. It's not just credits. It doesn't get the electrons, but I think it's fair to note that. Over to you. Yeah, that's true. And, and I think Apple's doing the same. Amazon is building, you know, solar facilities to power their, you know, their data centers. And so I, you know, we're, I think they're buying Rex where they, 
they can't do it, but you know they are building you know solar facilities to meet their goals. Terry, you have I'd also point out that you know uh, Portugal last year had a couple of weekends. Now, admittedly, it was weekends when there weren't a lot of factories operating, but weekends where they were one the country, the entire country was 100% renewable energy powered. Uh, we saw recently the UK for the first time in its history had I think it was a week where it did not have to use any coal-fired uh, generation. It still had other forms, but we're moving in that direction in a big way. But I would also, and, and for your listeners who can't see the room, we, we can take a, a survey. We can count heads here very quick. I'm going to ask a question of all of you. Um, raise your hand if you would like your body to be 70% cancer-free, but 30% of your, of your cells would have cancer. Raise your hand if, you, if you're okay with 30%. Yeah. So for the people who aren't in the room, the, nobody's hand went up. Um, and I make that point not just to be humorous, but to point out that there's a reason we're doing this. This isn't just to try to create a new industry that suddenly fell in our laps. We wouldn't have a solar industry or renewable energy industry if fossil fuels were doing their job and, and being clean about it. Uh, we'd just continue business as usual. I mean, again, we, we vilify the fossil fuel industry for having now lately lied to us and tried to take us backwards and so forth, as we've talked about. But let's face it, 100 years ago, it, it modernized our economies. It gave us tremendous benefits. Uh, the Industrial Revolution is possible thanks to fossil fuels. It's just time to evolve. But one of the reasons to evolve is our health. This is not just about J.J. the whale. It's not just about saving a tree in a forest. This is about the report that I read this morning on my way down here in the car. The World Health Organization just issued a report. Seven million people died of completely preventable air pollution last year in the world. Seven million. And I guarantee you, you know one of those people. They may not have on their death certificate died from air pollution. It might say COPD, it might say a heart attack, it might say lung cancer, but I guarantee you, everybody in this room and in the sound of my voice knows people who have died because of completely preventable air pollution. So do not make any mistake why we have to get to 100%. And I think in the first few months of this year in the U.S., I think 98% of all capacity added was you know, wind or solar. This is going to sound petty after that really poignant point you made, but going back to politics, um, do you think the left maybe has too much infighting to challenge what I just brought up? Do you think we do go back and forth and hear the left challenge each other too much on some of the details when there's so much more in common and then we get caught up with that versus you know, having a united front against uh, some of the other established interests? And I don't want to personally pick a, a fight in that, but do you think the, the left is too involved with infighting perhaps? We do have a tendency to circle the wagons, point the guns inward, and start shooting. Uh, it's my one quibble with my good friend Elon Musk is that, you know, he loves his battery cars, but he hates the idea of powering them with hydrogen. And I drive a hydrogen-powered, it's an electric car, takes me five minutes to refuel instead of a long time to plug in and recharge a battery. Both are good, both are necessary, they're slightly different but they're all part of the future. And it really does pain me when I see our side, so to speak, uh, doing that, pointing the guns inward and firing at each other because it's only with getting all the oars in the water that we're actually going to get to a brighter future, including the Republican oars. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that that's where I personally 
you know, debate the 100% renewable, not because I think it's a bad idea or that I don't think it would be terrific. It's that I think it, it, it not only in, in my view is unachievable in the near term, but also I think politically it creates headaches. I mean, if you explain to your constituents that that the world is changing and that there are opportunities to clean up the air, there are opportunities to mitigate climate change, the costs of doing so can be well balanced with the benefits and it's a slow transition, I think you can have a, a really good dialogue and you can, you can make friends and, and, as you say, put more oars in the water. I think if you go to a lot of towns um, in America and say, trust me, we're going to be 100% renewable no one's going to lose a job. The cost of goods and services aren't going to go up. Everything is going to be fine. I think you've got a political problem. I think people just don't believe that. Let's turn to the CAFE standards, the corporate average fuel economy standards. We mentioned that at the beginning. California is currently on track for an all-out collision with Washington. There's California plus uh, 16 other states and the District of Columbia launched a, a lawsuit this week against the EPA. That's in anticipation of a rule that's expected to stall the fuel economy standards at 2020 levels. They haven't officially released the rule yet, uh, so we don't quite know how this lawsuit will play out. Also, there's discussion of pulling California's waiver, which allows the state to implement more aggressive policies. Terry, how do you think this is going to play out? Well, the courts will ultimately decide it, as they did this notion of whether or not greenhouse gases are a pollutant, which even a Republican majority court uh, decided that they were. Um, and, you know, when I was EPA secretary, uh, I had to certify that the regulations we were putting in place to regulate vehicles uh, from their uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the state cannot regulate fuel economy, but it can regulate emissions. So we were regulating the greenhouse gas emissions from cars. I had to certify that. Um, and part of what I had to certify was that it was technologically and economically feasible. And yes, it did add initial cost to a vehicle, but uh, within uh, the average car would be about 18 months of fuel use uh, before it would get paid back in maintenance uh, savings and, yes, fuel savings. That was one way to achieve that emission standard, but not the only way. And uh, so when that got federalized into a, a fuel economy standard by the Obama administration, uh, that just made common sense because you're not going to make cars for California and the 14 states that followed us and then dirtier cars for everybody else. So the car industry came along. I actually think we're going to get some in the car industry on our side of this issue because they know that another president could obviously withdraw that lawsuit or settle that lawsuit, could obviously impose those regulations again in a couple of years. Uh, they're long-term planners. I, I talked to Bill Ford once. He said it takes eight years to go from designing a car to testing it to you know, marketing it to mass producing it and so forth, they can't suddenly decide, ah, oh, thank God the Trump administration isn't going to make us do something we know is technologically feasible and economically viable and that people like saving money on their fuel and their maintenance. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to go backwards now. I mean, Although they did just cease selling cars and sedans Ford did. Well, Ford did because that's where their business model is. But, you know, I would also point out that those trucks and SUVs, again, we don't necessarily need to be driving a living room on wheels to go pick up a quart of milk at the store. But, uh, but those are 96% more fuel efficient and less, or more, uh, uh, not more fuel efficient, but uh, 96% cleaner in terms of their emissions than they were when my father bought a pickup truck. So, so even those, and people do need those. I mean, if you're in, in the construction business or you have other reasons to have a bigger vehicle. Uh, but there's lots of other companies that are making hybrids and small sedans and electric cars and f hydrogen fuel cell cars and so on. 
Another uh, quote that we brought up at the beginning was the Michael Bloomberg quote, so I wanted to quickly touch on that, because it brings up a bigger issue around advocacy for clean energy. Um, when you announced the Leonardo DiCaprio um, grants last year, you talked about these come at a critical time with a lack of political leadership. We've talked about states taking up the mantle. And then you have individuals like Leo and Michael Bloomberg, who, again, has decided to give $4.5 million of his own money to uphold the U.S. commitments at the U.N. for the Paris Climate Agreement. Shane, you can probably explain this better, but doesn't that action kind of show that you don't need to spend taxpayer dollars on this. Foundations, individuals will step up and get the job done. And Shane, how would you frame that? Yeah, I've actually thought a lot about that. I mean, a lot of conservatives for years have said, let's concede right now for the sake of this argument that there's a problem that needs to be solved. Um, there are a lot of people with a lot of money, and there are a lot of people that don't have a lot of money. And so, you know, conservatives that I know have said, let them spend their money. I mean, you're a billionaire, figure it out. You've got hundreds of millions of dollars, figure it out. I trust you. I believe that you're right. I believe the investment needs to be there, but I don't believe, I think it's regressive to have the government tax all of our citizens and, and pay for things that are preferences of the wealthy. I'm not saying I fully 100% buy into that, but I do think people, uh, the good work that you guys do and the good work that Bloomberg does sort of feeds the narrative that they do have that money and they are willing to step up and make a difference, and I and I wonder uh, with with um, with Bloomberg specifically, when you say the government is abdicating its responsibility, it's horrific. I'm I'm not quoting directly, and so I'm going to step up and do this. It again politicizes it. Whereas if you just said this is something that needs to get done, I can afford to do it, and I'm doing a great thing for our country. I think everyone loves you. And when you say our government's terrible, and I'm doing this because they're terrible, it's partisan again. And I just wonder. At what point does it become politically wise to say we're doing this because it's the right thing to do and because we can afford it, rather than we're doing this because these guys are schmucks and they won't? This is, you know, the Republicans accused Obama of leading from behind. This is leading from behind. I mean, philanthropy is great, but it's not going to solve this issue. And what does it say to the world uh, that, you know, the United States wouldn't contribute four and a half million dollars to this fund? I mean, we've, the Department of Defense spent four and a half million dollars since this conversation started, right? This is nothing for the government. So, I mean, it's just, I think it, it says the wrong message to the world. Terry, do you have any thoughts on that and the idea of philanthropy stepping in and does that make it any more complex in the political realm? Well, I would agree with Shane that, you know, you don't have to put a stick in somebody's eye to do a good deed. Um, and, you know, if we're trying to reduce the rhetoric to get people to listen to us, that's probably not the best way to go about it. Uh, and, that look, philanthropy can do its part, but it does its part in so many other sectors of society. But that doesn't uh, mean that government should abdicate its requirement to do things. We put a lot of money into education, for example, but I think all of us still would like to know that our K-12 through education system, and hopefully even beyond that, is covered at least by basic government support of our school districts. So it doesn't mean that uh, the charity doesn't have a role to play or that you know, others don't have a role to play. All right, time for our last and final section, If You Can't Say Something Nice, where we have to have each of our, uh, our panelists here, Democrats, Republicans, say something they found redeeming about the opposing party in recent weeks, a statement, anything. Uh, Brandon, do you want to go first? Sure. So my uh, nice thing to say this week, uh, I want to give a shout out, and my, uh, my roots in Chicago and being Polish is going to come out here, Kevin Shamaleski. I think I did that right. He is the uh, deputy, or was the deputy chief of staff at the EPA, 
And he has been a whistleblower. He came out, we talked in the last episode about Scott Pruitt's hearing coming out, uh, or coming up. And so after the hearing took place, uh, Kevin stepped up and, and said, uh, he's lying. He's a bald-faced liar. And uh, he said that, or the administrator, Pruitt, said he had not retaliated against any of his employees for speaking up about wrongdoing. And Kevin said, you know, I was retaliated against. I was fired for speaking up and trying to point out that we were wasting, you know, taxpayer money and possibly breaking laws. And I think that's a very difficult thing to do. As I mentioned, I've been a deputy chief of staff at an agency. There's a lot of pressure to just go with the flow. Um, you know, you get these jobs, you know, uh, people invite you to new parties, they want to, you know, they want to be your friend. It's a very, it can be very intoxicating for people. Uh, and so for him to, he, this guy, Kevin, um, he was early uh, a member of Trump's campaign. Trump has put him on stage with him during campaign rallies. Uh, so, so for him to speak out against, you know, this administration and his boss, that takes a lot of courage uh, because I think a lot of people would just sort of look the other way and continue in this job. And so a uh, big shout out to, to Kevin. Uh, and he still supports Trump, by the way. Um, but I think it took a lot of courage to speak up uh, against his former boss about this. All right. Shout out to Kevin. Uh, Shane, over to you. So I'm going to cheat a little bit because this didn't happen this week, but I think it's very appropriate for this venue. I think uh, Democrats, by and large, have done a fantastic job leading on this issue, the issue that we're all here to talk about, specifically the summit, which is solar. I think um, it is my hope that Republicans will take it, run with it, treat it as a, an economic opportunity, and you know make it a bipartisan or a Republican issue. But I think without the Democratic Party forcing it down our throats early on, people like me would have never come around to it. So uh, I, I imagine there are, there, are, there are industry participants who are, who are conservative, who are liberal, who are everywhere in between. And I'm sure that for those of you who are conservative, you're grateful that uh, this issue has been elevated to be you know, a bipartisan one and one that Republicans support. So uh, while I typically do not like um, you know, mandates, I'm, I'm glad that our, that our Democratic leaders have, have, have brought this industry to the point that it is today. Shane came around on solar. He's going to be Democrat by the midterms, ladies and gentlemen. We're no, well no, no, on no, our no, way. No, 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 no. Turn Shane blue. I'm Canadian, so I don't vote in America. I'm, I'm not allowed to, so I'm Switzerland here. Um, Terry, do you have a, a answer for us? Sure, very quickly. Uh, a couple of examples. One is James Baker and the effort that he led to right, all the way into the White House, into the Trump White House, to try to persuade them that a price on carbon would actually be a good thing for this country. Now, obviously, it didn't go very far, but for Republicans, uh, you know, senior Republicans, thoughtful Republicans, which obviously have included uh, 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 Senator McCain and, and Lindsey Graham and others over time, that we have to put a price on carbon, that is, uh, that is very encouraging. I also want to ask a real uh, serious question. Raise your hand if you think this is a fake NGO or a real one. Uh, raise your hand if you think it's fake. Republicans for Environmental Protection. Raise your hand if you think that's a fake group. A couple of hands went up. Couple. Well, in fact, most, many of you may know that there actually was an organization like that. It's now called Conserve America. And if you go to their website, um, they are uh, touting a lot of different things that, uh, that conservatives can agree on in land protection and in various other kinds, in renewable energy, recognizing that that's good for the economy. So there actually are Republicans for environmental protection. And even though I'm a Democrat who served in a Republican administration, I'll give one last example. Uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, who many think is a Democrat, uh, or at least would define as a Democrat, even though he's got an R next to his name, he and former Governor Kasich 
of Ohio uh, have been campaigning on these issues recently, making it clear that this is an economic opportunity, an opportunity about national uh, health and national defense and so forth. I do think that's one other way to perhaps get over some of the partisan divide. Um, Schwarzenegger talks about this a lot, is that you know we just keep championing about climate change, but if we start talking about public health, about national security, about other legs of that stool, about all the reasons why we should be doing what you in this room are doing with solar and uh, with renewable energy, then we're much more likely to, to make progress. Well, we try to build consensus here, and I feel like we got there. We're trying to be the anti-crossfire and really show that we can talk about these issues in civilized ways, and thank you all so much for doing that. Thank you all for listening to us. This is, again, Political Climate, GTM's newest podcast. We're on uh, iTunes. We're on TuneIn, Google Play, soon to be on Spotify, so look for that shortly. Thank you so much again for being here. Let's give our panelists and speakers a round of applause. Yeah.